One of life's greatest questions is, what happens to us after we die? Is death the end or a new beginning? Welcome to the Round Trip Death Podcast. In this show, we listen to first-hand accounts of people who have gone beyond the veil and return to talk about it. We are excited to have with us today, Nicole Kerr. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, Eric. Delighted to be here with you. Well, Nicole, I know I hate to sound braggart or anything. I'm looking at your website and it says that you've been featured on ABC, CBS, CNN, Food Network, PBS. Finally, finally, this is your day. You get to be on Round Trip Death Podcast. (laughs) I've been looking forward to this for a long, long time. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, um, I have, I've been on the media a lot. Most of it has been through nutrition and, uh, lifestyle wellness for my background with that. And my expertise with that, I worked at the centers for disease control and prevention for, for many, many years and tried to get people to eat healthier. And, um, it's been a challenge and especially during the pandemic, it was a challenge to get people to, to eat healthier. So I've kind of moved on from, from that expertise and gone into some of the other wheels in the uh, wellness wheel and now I'm in more of the spiritual piece of the wheel you know you have if you look at a, a circle a pie and you cut it into quarters you have the physical part of wellness which is the nutrition and the physical activity and the sleep and then you've got the mental and then you've got the uh, emotional which is the emotions that you either allow yourself to feel or not feel and then the spiritual is the last and I've worked in wellness my entire career uh, since my car crash and I can tell you that you have to do all four components. You have to address the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual. One quarter is not more important than the other, but the spiritual wraps it all together because we truly don't heal ourselves. It's spirit that really heals us. Well, amen to all that. Tell us a little bit more about you. Okay. Where did you, for example, if you don't mind, where did you grow up? I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. Do you know where that is? Uh, yes. <laughs> Mississippi is down by Louisiana. Yeah, it's down there. It's squished in between Louisiana and Alabama. And it's kind of one of those places. It's called the crossroads of the South. People are driving through Mississippi to get to Florida or going the other way to Texas. But I grew up in the South and uh, the Bible Belt, for sure. Uh, Very high incidence of poverty, very high incidence of um, all your chronic diseases because we love everything fried, put into that deep fat fryer and sweet tea. So those things are definitely contributory toward diabetes and heart disease and things like that. So Mississippi is where I grew up. And as soon as I hit, um, I did both public and private schools. So I had an introduction to what it would be like to go to a school that was 98% African-American and 2% Caucasian. Um, And so it was uh, an eye opener to be, you know, bust in and segregation during reverse segregation during that period of time. So um, I will tell you, I grew up in a really religious household. My dad was uh, Southern Baptist and my mother was Lutheran. She was born in the Ukraine. So she really has had a lot of trauma coming through World War II. And 
uh, coming to Mississippi, Holly Springs, um, and a church sponsored her. So she and her family were indentured servants. They picked cotton in order to pay off the debt to the church. And so, um, you know, they both have had a lot of what I would call, you know, trauma that they um, they never even got any help with. And I think that's a point I want to make on your show is right now in our country, we have a lot of trauma, people with dealing with trauma. We have a lot of people with PTSD. We have a lot of people feeling anxiety and depression. And that is not a good recipe for a healthy country. And we need to deal with that or else we pass it on to the next generation. And if you don't, you don't have compassion or empathy for others that have been traumatized because you, you never got help with it. So you don't have the capacity to be compassionate for others that are going through it. So I really want people to hear that they need to deal with their trauma wounds um, and that's part of um, letting go of belief systems that no longer work for you. And it's time in this day and age for people to, to start becoming aware of that. Just because um, it's a generational thing doesn't mean it works anymore or it's the right thing to do or it's your now, it's your belief system. So um, anyway, back to growing up, the the South, religion is the really, really important. And I just moved to New Bern, North Carolina after 17 years in the beautiful state of Hawaii. And um, I have to tell you, being back in the South, there's a church on every corner, you know? So it reminds me of, of just the importance of how the church figures into people's lifestyle and their, their belief systems and how they... Um, yeah, how they view death. And so that is uh, the book that I have recently written is called You Are Deathless. And when I graduated from high school, I went to the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Now you may be going, what in the world would I go there for? And I will tell you to please my father. My father was a 1960 graduate and so he wanted one of us four kids to go. And I just stepped up to the plate and said, I'll go. Now, if you remember, Eric, they started admitting women into the military academies in 1976. It was a huge controversy back then, but they did it. So the first class of women graduated in 80. So mine was 86. So I was really close to the, the new initiation of women into the military academies. And I can tell you, uh, it was very abusive. Okay. So um, those academies, your first year anyway, you are just abused, you know, because you're a, a dually or, you know, whatever they call the, the first class. Um, but you get, you get basically, and I don't use this word a lot, you get shit on. So how much of that is just initiation because you're a new cadet and how much of it was because you were a woman? Uh, I think I got more than my share because I was a woman and um, there were a lot of, a lot of uh, sexual comments that were totally inappropriate and um, you can't do anything about it. It's not only comments, but actions. And so that abuse is a whole nother layer that the other men didn't have to necessarily face. Right. And hopefully nowadays, this many years later, things are much better than they used to be. I know they're not perfect, 
No, For those that can't see you, you're shaking your head no. Tell me. No, no. There was just a report out of um, West Point. In fact, I have it right here. It was talking about how West Point um, military academy sexual assault reports increase. Wow. So it, it unfortunately, I don't know what you know, is going on, but that piece of it is maybe more people are feeling okay to report it, but it's not getting better. And that really is sad after, you know, I've been, that's almost 40 years ago. So um, I think they still have a lot of work to do with that. And um, I don't know what it's going to take, but at least now that age uh, of uh, generals, from back then, they most of them have died or moved on. So as the years go on, the people that will be in a leadership position will have trained with women. So it will be a norm for them rather than a group of leaders that were going through with all men and still carrying that um, resentment. Right. And the objectification. Well, and hopefully some of those leaders are women too, and that'll help make a difference, I would think. Yes, yes, that's that's exactly right. And God bless them because you must, you know, what they endured to get there, but they did it. Okay, let's shift gears. Yep. This is all this is all awesome. And I appreciate us being able to get to know you a little bit. But you had a near-death experience, and we're gonna be talking about that. I want to do the I usually go kind of in chronological order. I want to trip you up just a little bit here and skip ahead because I believe you didn't have a memory of your experience for quite some time. Could you just briefly touch on that and then we'll come back to your NDE? Okay. So my near-death experience happened when I was 19, my second year into the academy. Um, I didn't remember the accident for another 19 years. The only thing I remembered about it was bright white light. That was it. And um, then when I was in Atlanta working at Centers for Disease Control, I went, my usual route was to go to Starbucks and then to work. I went to Starbucks. Uh, I got in my car and all of a sudden, Eric, I could see myself sitting in the Corvette convertible. And I knew exactly the position I was in when the accident happened. So that was the first of my memory coming back. And instead of going to work, I went to see my chiropractor who did body work and he didn't have any openings that day. And I said, I don't care. I'm going to sit here until you can fit me in. And, and he did. And he said, what this is, Nicole, it's called repressed memories. And they're starting to come up in you because your body feels safe. And this, so I, he worked with me until I got to a point in the, the, memory where I was up looking down on myself and realizing I was dead. And then he told me to go home and just try to, you know, sleep and, and the rest of the memory would come. And sure enough, that night, the rest of the memory did come. So I was like, oh my gosh, how does, how does this even happen? And what the memory was, I'll go ahead and tell you now is, um, I was told, I, I actually, when the car crashed, I was taken up and where the point that I got to this angel, the spirit, it looked like Casper the ghost, who I now know is my grandfather. Okay. My grandfather, Kerr. And he came and he lifted me up. So my spirit flew out before I hit the ground. 
and we went in an upward direction and we went to this plane, I guess it would be better to say than level. And it was where uh, I could hear other beings. They're not human form, but I could hear them talking. I could understand them. And there was a conversation going on next to me that I heard very clearly between two, two spirits or angels. And it was that they were talking about how we as earth beings need to ask the angelic realm for help. That because we have free will, that they need to be asked for help in order to intervene in our lives, unless it is an emergency situation, which mine was. And that was an automatic angel coming in to rescue me. So that's a lesson that people need to hear is the angels will help us, but we need to ask for help. And in our society, we're not really taught to ask for help. You know, where there's a lot of pride in being able to do things on our own. We don't need any help. I'm independent, but they are very clear about that to ask for help. And it, it's big things and little things. So that's that's the first message that I got. So how do how do we ask for help? Is that a regular prayer? Is that a how do we ask? Angels help me. <laughs> okay. I need help with, uh, you know, whatever's going on, you know, I've got to make a really hard decision and I'm not sure which way to go. Please help me, you know, put something, put some kind of sign in my life that helps me choose, you know, and it's as easy as just saying, help me, you know, and uh, that is you surrendering to their help. Now you have to be open-minded and you have to, to suspend disbelief and go, okay, their answer could come in a variety of ways. Okay. It can come, I believe they're, they're earth angels. And I talk about that in my book, in my accident, I had four of them that I believe were earth angels. They were put in my life at that specific time to help my body heal. And they can come, uh, you know, it can come in a song. It can come in a, uh, a sign, a, a butterfly or whatever, you know, you just never know something that you would resonate and connect with. But that is definitely, um, you know, something that we need to get in the habit of practicing is asking for help. We're all, everyone and everything is connected in this world. We're all energy. And it really is a lesson that we are still needing to, to, to own during this time in our lives is that we are all connected. And I think you're seeing a lot of division right now. We're gonna to get to that place, but right now it's very uh, divisive. It's very uh, disconnected. And um, it unfortunately uh, doesn't promote harmony, peace, love, kindness, these things that all of us value and wish in our life. I want to get a little more detail out of exactly what happened when you were 19. Do you remember or have been told what led up to the accident? Give give people an idea here. So what kind of car were you in? What were you doing before the crash? Sure, sure. But let me say the other message I was giving. Oh, please do. That was more direct. And that was me looking down at my body in the ditch. And I could see I had on my, you know, my Azad 
shirt and my khaki pants. And I was like, whoa. Um, so I, uh, my angel told me, Nicole, you're going to go back. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go back because I knew there was going to be a lot of pain and suffering. So I was like, no, I don't want to. And he said to me, and I say he, because it was masculine. And I was told that my message was to tell people to not be afraid of death. That simple. And this is 19 years later and I'm going, how in the world am I gonna do that? Uh, I, I just couldn't even fathom that because at that point I was still scared of death because I had never really dealt with my own fear of it. When I was in the hospital, I was there four months. Every single day was life and death. They didn't know if I was going to make it or not. So I became terrified of death again, you know? So this was what I was told. And then I was, I just remember being up there and it was like this white light and all these different colors. They're colors that were there that weren't in the 64 Crayola color box that we got as kids, you know, it was, it was other colors, but what white absorbs other colors, right? So when you're in white, you're actually in all of these colors. And in my opinion, that is the essence of God. Okay. Is this pure, uh, love light, just a cocoon of it. I I just can't tell you how beautiful it was and how comforting it was. And just, it, it just didn't have words. You know, there was no negativity. There was no pain. There was no suffering, none of that. So, um, you know, clearly uh, I didn't want to come back because I knew what I was going to be up against with my family and just trying to heal from what I could see were a lot of injuries. So that's the main message, and hence my book, You Are Deathless. A near-death experience taught me how to fully live and not fear death. So it's taken me another 20 years to figure out that message. So I kind of feel like what the Israelites were wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness, you know, it's been my whole adult life <laughs> to try to get this message out. I mean, I went on with my life, but, you know, it's... It's a big one. And we are a very gloom and doom society when it comes to death. And a lot of us are in um, death denial. It's not going to happen to me, you know, or someone that I love. And you just never know. That's the whole thing. You always need to be prepared because you could any of us could go at any moment. That's what I wanted to make sure everybody heard were those two messages. Do you have any questions about that? Oh, absolutely. I always have lots of questions, but I want to go back to the accident. Let's okay. get into that first. Okay. So the accident happened the beginning of my sophomore year. I made it through the worst of it. I mean, I made it through hell week. I made it through survival training, all of that kind of stuff. By the hair of my chinny chin chin, I made it, but I wasn't happy. And the further along you get in the academy, the harder it gets in terms of academics. So I was the Beginning of my sophomore year, we had a big squadron party to kick it off. And I got there late because I was doing um, a meet and greet with high schoolers about how great the academy is for women <laughs> and um, trying to convince them to come. And so I got there later and uh, they were playing softball. The Air Force had provided beer. 
um, broke their own rules, provided beer to underage cadets. And uh, needless to say, when it came time to leave, uh, I asked a senior for a ride back. And he was like, okay. And needless to say, he wanted to stop at a bar on the way back. Now we have a curfew that you have to be back by 735. And I was really worried about that because last year I had gotten in trouble for a couple of things. And I didn't want to start this year doing tours and demerits and all of that. So I was very conscious of getting back on time. And he's like, oh, no, I got plenty of time. Let's stop and get some beers. And I had not had any beer because my my grandfather was an alcoholic. My dad forbid alcohol. So I didn't I was not exposed to drinking. Let's put it that way. But I had two beers. I was going to be like, I'm going to have some fun here. I'm going to just kind of break dad's rules and uh, have some alcohol and have a cigarette and pretend I'm cool. And so uh, we left there and I remember the the bartender saying, are you okay to drive? And the guy said, yeah. And I said, oh, okay. And uh, then he wanted to go watch the sunset at the rock on the Rocky Mountains. Now, Nicole being uh, not having dated at all was very naive when it comes to a 21 year old man's agenda. Okay, so I was getting really nervous that he was starting to be more sexually uh, aggressive. And uh, I was like, no, we got to get back. So he finally pulled onto the road and it was a 1965 Corvette convertible red with the top down didn't have seat belts. And the last thing I remember was pulling onto the road. And then the next thing I remembered was waking up in the ICU the next day. And all of a sudden the pain just hit me. And it was like, oh my God, what happened? And um, I told the nurse, don't tell my dad, you know, he will kill me because he's gonna think that I was drinking, I was smoking and I was dating this cadet. I broke his rules. So being you deserve it. And that's exactly what he thought. So um, needless to say, the only thing I remembered was that bright white light. And it wasn't a blinding light, Eric. It was, you know, how sometimes you see headlights or lights that that completely blind you. And, you know, when somebody takes a picture, that, that flashlight that goes off, that bright white light, your, your eyes just can't, takes a while to refocus, right? This, this white light was not like that at all. And you could, you could stare at it for, forever long you want, and it would not do that to you. So um, then I began a four-month journey in the hospital, uh, going uh, just in and out. I'd get better, and then I'd drastically get worse. And my injuries were highly significant. I cut off my left foot. It was just held on a little bit of skin. They had to reattach that 5% 5% chance of taking, and it actually took from a skin graft. Uh, I broke both sides of my pelvis. I, I severed my right wrist. They pinned that together. I had bad road burn from sliding on the pavement. They had to work on that. Um, but when I remembered 19 years ago, what I remembered was how I was sitting because I could never figure out how I cut up all the inside of my thighs. I had a fourth degree laceration between my anal and sphincter muscle. I cut out a huge chunk of skin right uh, in the the inside of my right thigh. So all that area just got just got torn up really, really bad. And um, I had my right foot on the dashboard and my left foot crossing over in a triangle. And so when the accident happened, I went butt up through the windshield and 
then there was a huge boulder on my side and the car crashed into that. And what I wound up doing um, was it saved my head. I mean, I had a TBI, but I, my brain was saved and my spinal cord. So I am grateful for that because, you know, I had injuries all around that, but it didn't paralyze me and it didn't cause me any, um, I mean, I get headaches and migraines, but it didn't cause me brain damage per se. Um, prefrontal lobe uh, irregularity was what it was. So, right. um, so I spent, you know, seven weeks in ICU, 64 pints of blood, you know, during that time. And that was at a time when AIDS was, uh, they were not screening AIDS in the blood transfusions that people were giving at the time. And I remember uh, about six months after I got home, the hospital called and said, you may want to get tested for AIDS. And I'm like, what, what for? And they go, well, you got 64 pints of blood, which is, um, you know, most of us have between eight to 10 pints of blood in our body at one time. So that's like redoing my system five to six times, right? So I went and got an AIDS test and of course was scared to death to get the results of that. But I was negative. Thank you, God, because I remember at the time a congressman's daughter was in a car wreck in Colorado and she had one transfusion and she got AIDS from it and died. So, you know, you look at life and you just go, what are the odds? You know, um, I had six major operations. One was an emergency. I coded on that. And uh, they actually told my parents I was dead and just start planning my funeral. Uh, they called the time on it and everything. So then the nurse came running out and say, I don't know what they got her going again. You know, so I had a couple of more what I would say chances where I tried to go back. <laughs> I didn't want to be here, you know, and I have what I now call my military angel, James, who fought really hard to keep me here. And now I know 100% that my purpose was to get this message out and to survive everything that I have between the academy and the medical and just the mental and everything that I needed to, to get to this point 40 years later, where I really do believe a lot of people are struggling with fears about death. And hopefully my book will help set them at ease about that. Because when you're in fear, then you can't truly live. Well, and that's absolutely one of the points of this podcast is to help people get over that fear of death. It's a common message that I hear from everybody. And it's such a great message that we need right now because the world's a little tough right now. And there's a lot of depressing news out there. Before we move on, tell me what else, if anything, that you can remember from that NDE itself. Be as specific as you can. Sight, smells, sounds. You know, it was it was mainly the, the feelings of, of no fear, no negativity. I didn't feel alone. I didn't feel judged. Um, I just felt love. And I realized that that God is love. God, period. There's no punitiveness there. There's no judgmentalism there. Um, our souls do live on, okay? They, they have a long trajectory. And you do see your loved ones when you return to the other side, but you're not holding on to all the negative. 
you see them in their soul form, which is love and beauty and light. So you're, you, none of the, the abuse or negativity or anything that went on on this earthly plane is brought up there. So that is so comforting because I have parents now that are religious addicts and I don't, we don't speak, unfortunately. And it's their human form. It's not who their spirit is. And that is what I've had to really um, pull apart is that's not who my, the essence of my mother is the essence. She's it's God. She has just gotten caught up and trapped in belief systems that have caused her to maladapt to a certain way of life. And it's very critical. It's very judgmental of others. And it's, um, it's sad. Yeah. You, you mentioned a masculine angel that you found out was your grandfather. Did you know that at the time or did you figure that out sometime later? I've just figured that out in the last four weeks. Okay. And he came to me uh, and I was just like, I was, I was shocked because I was just like, okay, I knew the whole time it was a masculine presence. And I was just like, so I decided to ask my, I have, I have spirit. We all have spirit guides and we all have guardian angels. I decided to ask, would he make himself known to me? And he did. And I think that goes to show um, one of the lessons from NDEs is you'll see your loved ones. Well, my loved one was my grandfather who died at my age right now. He died young from a heart attack. Um, And it's just like, oh my goodness, he chose to reveal it at the age he died. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Can I ask more about repressed memories? And I realize you're not a you're not a licensed, um, you know, psychiatrist or anything, but you've had a lot of time to think about this and probably do a lot of your own research. Um, I, I think there's some, I don't know, there's some judgment out there in the world that repressed memories, whether they're abuse or something else, people sometimes question whether they are real or not. Tell me about yours. Tell me, were they, were they real and how do you know that they're real? That is a very good question. And I will tell you, I did, and I talk about it in the book because I do, I put some science since I was trained as a scientist, I put some science in there about trauma, about repressed memories, uh, about NDEs and how, you know, it's very difficult um, to trust that it's a memory, you know, because of what people say, uh, even with sexual abuse that happened as a child, you've repressed it. And then when you start, remembering it, you doubt yourself, you know, you're like, I'm just making this up or, you know, but it really is about trusting your body. Your body holds the key. It remembers and it will let you know, in my opinion, the repressed memory will come up when your body feels safe enough to actually be in a position to believe it and it's for yours or someone else's highest and greatest good that it comes out. So I think that's a lot of people's fear is that if I say something, they're going to doubt me and it makes me doubt myself. And I dealt with that for a long time. 
And I remember I was sexually abused at age eight by an uncle, and I didn't remember it until my mid-30s. And I told my parents, and I was shocked at their response because my mother said, I always knew that he was, um, you know, there was something wrong with him, that he was, a, you know, pedophile or he just the way he hugged you and all this kind of stuff and she went straight to what her experience was with this uncle and then my dad said well he's dead now so I can't ask him whether or not he did it and I was just like oh my gosh <laughs> you know it was not believing me basically you know um it, they, and then they're like you know I wouldn't have let anything like that happen and I said dad you weren't even there it happened in New York when mom took us on a trip you know and and so um you know it's it's very difficult when you don't have that support and compassion from your own parents when you get up the courage to tell them that you remembered something happening you know, and, and it makes sense given my whole relationship with men. And then you put on that, the memory coming back of the guy in the car was trying to grab at my crotch when he, and I said, no. And he turned the wheel really fast and the car spun out. So my association was, if I don't please men, they're going to be angry with, with me and I will get hurt or killed. So I became extra people pleasing with guys that I tried to date. And it I never understood why until the memory came back. And after that, it only took one boyfriend and then I got married at 40. And the guy I'm with now, we've been together 18 years and he saw in me what I couldn't see in myself at that time. And now I can. And for that, I just love him to pieces. That's that's great. I almost hate to ask, but I'm curious, what happened to the guy that was driving the car? You know, his this is where I always wondered why I loved Law and Order, but it was his dad was a three-star general, headed the Army Corps of Engineers at the time, and he made one call to the superintendent of the academy and said, "I don't care whatever happens, my son's going to graduate." And he was in another hospital for about a week. He, his blood alcohol was double the limit in Colorado. He was charged with vehicular assault, um, DUI, pled uh, guilty, and the judge, right before his graduation, deferred the sentence. So um, he had some scratches on his back, but he was back at the academy playing sports and doing his life, you know, uh, my understanding, he was supposed to go to, he was an alcoholic. He was supposed to go to alcohol counseling and, you know, um, I've lost touch. You know, I never, I never got the apology from him that I wanted. And I went into therapy and therapist, cognitive behavioral therapist said, write him a letter, an angry letter. So I said, really? She said, yeah. So I wrote him a four page letter and this is over 20 years ago. And I sent it to him. I found out where he lived and I sent it to him. And he wrote me back and just was um, still not owning it and said that I tried to financially ruin him because I sued the insurance company um, for some amount of money. Because when you're in the military, if the military is at fault, it doesn't matter if they're at fault or not. You don't get uh, any kind of reimbursement from the military. If your husband's a fighter pilot and something mechanical went wrong with the plane and he died, you don't get any, you can't sue the military. You're, when you uh, go into the military, that's one of the things that uh, 
to yeah. write that you waive. That's exactly right. Right. Yeah. So that was the case with with this, even though the uh, even though the the academy um, was wrong in providing liquor for underage cadets, even though the officers left before everybody else did. I mean, there was a lot of rules that were broken. Um, and so they tried to keep this hush hush because the because his dad was um, wore three stars and and that's the injustice because any other cadet would have been kicked out on an honor code violation on just a, a multitude of things and um, so I've had to learn to deal with that piece too that the justice system I mean it has its privileges you know and you have to just go, okay, um, it is what it is. And uh, I haven't talked to him or there's been no communication in over 20 something years. And sure. And so that's, that's that piece of it. But I've always had this drive for justice in my life. I want justice for things, you know, when things happen. So. And things to be true. fair. Yeah. But hey, right. Let's, yeah. Let's talk about choice. Okay. I hear lots of NDEs and some people are given a choice on whether they want to come back or not. Some people are not given the choice. Uh, you weren't given a choice. Why do you think that is? Just your opinion? I think my contract to come back the second time around uh, changed. And the message that I was given that needed to come out, that I had the skill set, so to speak, to be able to do it that I was going to have the grit, that I was going to have the uh, determination, uh, that I was going to be able to live through this, to be able to get this message out in a way that would resonate with people and help them find peace um, with death and not to fear it and to know that where they're going is uh, home, basically, is where they came from. But they just had spiritual amnesia. They've forgotten it because they've loaded themselves up with all these filters and belief systems that have caused them to fear death. And the church, a lot of denominations have been um, one of the key players in these fears, and that's making God dualistic. One side, he's loving, protective, caring, other side, if you don't follow the rules, then you're going to hell, you're going to purgatory, you're going to, you know, you're going to be punished, you're going to be judged in a negative way. So um, you better shape up and you better be good. And you, you know, I talk about that as God is a vending machine, you know, you put in a certain behavior, and you're expecting to you push Coke and you expect Coke to come out, but what do you do when a Mountain Dew comes out or nothing comes out? You know, it makes it, it puts it on you that you didn't do something right in order to get that reward. That's interesting. Okay. So you're here. Part of your message is help is to tell people not to be afraid of death. That's easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Hey, you just don't be afraid of death. <laughs> It is. How can you really help somebody not be afraid of death? Well, um, there's some questions at the back of my book, and it's for a book study. And I hope people will, will use this book. As, if you're in a book study group, I think it would be a fascinating read for your book club. And it's going to get you guys more intimate with each other when you can actually talk about what your fears are. And there's a fear checklist at the end of it about, you know, what may uh, some fears that 
you may experience when you think about your own death. And some of them are, I don't, I don't want to leave my family alone. You know, I'm anxious about the way I'm going to die. You know, um, I fear dying alone. So, you know, it's about helping people identify what that fear is and then to really kind of um, dig under that because most fears that we have are irrational. And if you can get in alignment with who you really are, and that means alignment between the physical, the mental, the spiritual, and um, the emotional, then you are really clear. You have that clarity. And once you get the clarity, the, the fear ceases to be, you know, and you can really understand, no, that, that's coming from a belief system that I, I really logically don't believe it, but it's still stuck in my amygdala and I'm still frightened of it because I learned at six years old, you know, when I look up and I see Jesus suffering on the cross, I mean, how could that image inspire anybody about death, you know? that it's that it's good and even halloween you think about halloween with the little kitties dressed up but all the death symbols are scary i mean you see skeletons you see coffins you see dracula you know it's it's not uh a positive promotion of death and i get all that there's also something in our dna that is a survival instinct that's right, right? yes that's part of being human it's part of being human, what you, whether you want to call it the ev evolutionary factor or something, but there is something inside of us that is trying to stay alive as long as possible. And, and that's what our whole Western medicine is doing, right? If we can get you to live to be 89 instead of 88, whether your quality of life is great or not, then we've accomplished something. So, but that is a part of our DNA, it seems like. So it's natural for people to fear death because that is as far as a physical thing. I think that we're born with that. And then you're talking about the spiritual side and somehow they have to come into alignment. Yeah. And don't misunderstand me. When someone dies, there is still suffering, grief, pain, loss. Um, and we have to really be careful and compassionate and hold and heal those people. But, but, in the greater cosmic content, I guess, the benevolence and the knowledge are extra extraordinary. They, re they really are. You know, you're going to be able to live a happier life if you know that the place when you do decide to pass is going to be beautiful and it's going to be uh, loving and you're not going to be alone and you're not going to be judged. And uh, love is really all that matters and trying to uh, love yourself unconditionally is one of the biggest challenges because I tell people take that word should and kick it out into outer space and let it blow up because every time you say should on yourself I should be doing this instead of that or you should go here instead of there should equal shame and when you put shame on somebody or take it on yourself you go to a really lower vibration and what you're trying to do is raise your vibration so throw that word out and throw the other word out is try I'm going to try to meet you for coffee. You commit or you don't commit. Try is a way for you to get out. It gives you a buffer. So really think about that the next time you say should or try and try to get your awareness to catch it and go, okay, what am I really doing here? 
Okay. What other lessons do you have for us? You know, I take Lee Harris's lesson every morning. I write in my little, uh, my little diary here. Um, I ask my soul, what does my soul want to tell me today? And what that does is start a dialogue with your soul. When I was raised uh, back in the 60s and 70s, all I knew about soul was soul music. I didn't understand soul. I just understood uh, my physicalness and I better be a good girl. Okay, or God was going to be mad at me. Actually, if my dad was mad at me, then God was mad at me because my dad really was God. And I talk about in the book, he had his own 10 commandments, you know, and that we knew if we broke those, we were going to get punished severely. And the first one was you can't spend the night with other people, you know, and it's like I did it once. I got in trouble, even though I had permission from my mother in the fourth grade. And then I didn't spend the night again until I went off to the Air Force Academy and I had my three other roommates in there. And now I I don't have children. Uh, I have two fur, fur babies, but, um, you know, I see kids all the, all the time spending the night. I mean, it's just like every weekend, I'm going to go spend the night with so-and-so. And I'm just like, but my dad was of the mindset, nothing productive is ever going to come from you staying up all night and you've got work to do. You got your chores to do on Saturday. So, you know, he had his reasons, but it was very restrictive. Uh, if you can remember the great Santini. Yes, I do remember that film. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's a very um, contained, orderly, uh, fear your dad. So that was the kind of family you were raised in. Yeah. Okay. For those that haven't seen the great Santini, yes, I'd recommend it. It's a good old film. I don't know where you can find it now, but I'm sure it's out there someplace. And the young man in it, his father was, was he a Marine officer, yeah. sergeant, yeah. something, and ran their family like a drill sergeant would. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, hey, Nicole, appreciate your time a lot. Thank you very much. We'll put your website in the show notes so people can find books and things that you've talked about here and know how to get a hold of you if they want to. And I think uh, I think the thing that I've gotten from this as far as not fearing death, I think it's not a matter of, hey, I don't care if I live or not because dying's fine. I think it's a matter of let's replace the fear with peace. I don't want to die today, okay? But there's a lot of reasons to be living today still. And when my time finally comes, I'm at peace about that. Yeah, and not resisting it. Yeah, you know, because we really are, um, I've started to call myself an eternality advocate. So that means um, endlessness, everlasting, because your soul is everlasting. And that is, you will go on and on and on. And that is just beautiful. That's a great message to end on. Thank you, Nicole. Okay, thank you. If you have had a round-trip death experience, we would love to hear about it. Send an email to eric at roundtripdeath.com. And lastly, if you have found this program uplifting, if it's given you just a little more hope in the future, share it with a friend, hit that follow button, and take a few seconds to write us a review. Until next time, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. <laughs>